Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features, breaking news, opinion pieces, and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com to get my posts in your email inbox the second they go out. In this podcast, segment one will be Chris Whittingham joining me as we discuss this week's MLS Cup final with Portland hosting New York City and other international news. In segment two, I have a fun interview with ESPN's John Sutcliffe, largely about Mexico. And in segment three, Whitty and I will talk more domestic soccer news. Let's bring him in. How are you, Chris? Doing all right, sir. Just uh, got off of that ridiculous Eastern Conference final. Uh, which had 11 union players out due to COVID, which had the union going 1-0 up, but they couldn't hang on and New York City through to the final. Pretty incredible story when you think about how uh, that game, you know, just all the players that Philly was missing, 11 uh, due to COVID protocols, and then they go ahead. uh, And then almost instantly, New York City equalizes. They get the late goal uh, from Talos Magno, and now they're headed to Portland. Um, it would have been a really interesting, a fun story for, for Philly to have pulled it off, and it would have been interesting to see if they could have gotten their guys back in time for next weekend's final in Portland. Now that won't be the case, but New York City, for the first time, has reached the final uh, in a season when I don't know if the expectations were there for that. Yeah, I mean, I think their expectation are always to finish in the top four of the Eastern Conference just because if you look at their roster spend, if you look at the quality that they have in their team, it makes sense that they that they would kind of reach that point. But they've just never been able to deliver in the postseason until this year. And they haven't been able to kind of put together a performance like that. And by the way, they're without some key players too, without Tati Castellanos because of the red card suspension. They've had guys in and out of the lineup all season long. They sign Tyus Magno, who all of a sudden comes up with this huge moment in the Eastern Final without having really done much over the course of the year. This is a $10 million signing from Vasco da Gama, reportedly. This is a heavily touted prospect who, as a lot of new signings into MLS are wont to do, have taken some time to settle in. And all of a sudden, you wonder if this is his kind of launching point into being a big player for New York City heading into next season. So a lot went right for them, including the COVID protocol. And that, unfortunately for me, is the story coming out of this, is that Philly without their starting goalkeeper. Who knows if Andre Blake changes the dimensions of either of those two goals. And without their entire starting back four from the previous game. Now, uh, it's funny because Olivier Baizo, who makes a mistake for the final goal, is their preferred right back ahead of Alvis Powell and was coming back Mm -hmm. uh, to being their starting right back. But still, that's a story. And it really, for me, is kind of the first reminder, not that COVID exists, because obviously there's the Omicron variant, there's all kinds of things going on with COVID, but... It's kind of the first time it's affected a major sporting event like this for me in quite some time. Yeah, COVID has not gone away. COVID is not over. Uh, may even be getting a bit worse right now and, and certainly impacted Philadelphia. Uh, the strange thing was, I thought City actually didn't play that well in the first half. Um, and so they, they're going to have to perform better against Portland if they're going to have a chance to win that game in that atmosphere out there in Portland. Um Let's talk a little bit about the Portland Timbers beating Real Salt Lake to get to the final. Uh, got the early goal, and 
you know, there was one, you know, really nice save on a potential equalizer. But other than that, it, it kind of felt like this was Portland's game almost from the start. Yeah, and Portland are the kind of team where you very instantly recognize how they're going to get goal-scoring chances, particularly at home. You just see the runs that they make off the ball, the runs that they make in transition. They're going to get chances. They also have a couple of players that can dial it up from long range, which is what they got for the second goal from Santiago Moreno. Uh, Felipe Mora has, I think, been a better center forward than a lot of people anticipated with Yaroslav Nijgoda still kind of coming back after an ACL injury, after letting Jeremy Bobisi go to San Jose. They have enough in the attack. Uh, the question throughout most of the year has been, do they have enough in defense to keep a clean sheet in the Western Final to get there? And now, for the first time, they get to host MLS Cup in their hallowed venue that is so full of atmosphere. It'll be an amazing crowd, and they have a chance to win a title in front of their home fans. At the end of what's been a fairly tumultuous year as a Portland soccer fan, uh, they have the opportunity to really let it rip and celebrate what is a triumphant moment for Portland. They've been to MLS Cup Final on a couple of occasions, but have not been able to do this in front of their home fans. And that's going to be a party, the likes of which American soccer has not seen for a long time. I am looking forward to going out there. I go out on Thursday. We'll be there at the game on Saturday. Love going to Portland. Uh, just a tremendous soccer city. I've never um, been. I've never been. And I, and I will be going. I'll be joining you nice. up in Portland. Next Saturday for MLS Cup Final. I'll be there on the Friday as well. So I get to experience uh, what they say, even in their seats, is Soccer City USA. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that Excellent. is a contested title. It is interesting, though, because Gio Savarese is a guy who, midseason, there were some fans want him out. Uh, and yeah, they had a lot of injuries. And I did feel like they were capable of making a run once the, you know, once the playoffs started didn't you know wasn't sure of that by any means and i don't know who would have predicted that seattle kansas city and colorado all would go out earlier than expected in the playoffs but that's what's happened uh and, and here portland is and i think they're going to be the favorite heading into this final yeah taking advantage of the fortune of you know real salt lake getting all the way to the final but they had to go and win their away match they were the team in the playoffs that probably played on the least amount of rest uh, going from playing at the weekend to playing on a Thursday in Colorado uh, for that Thanksgiving Day game. They went and did the job, and they won the game. And I, I think that the Portland fans that were having a go at Geo early in the season were probably being unfair on the basis of the roster. When you look at what was available to him in defense, I believe, because I, I had Portland with uh, Inter-Miami this season, I believe they've started four goalkeepers this season, including an emergency loaning that they brought in from El Paso Locomotive in USL, uh, they have been at times in really dire straits from from a fitness standpoint, but kind of are the tribute to what I think sometimes is, you know, the lament of the MLS regular season, which is as long as you get hot in the second half, you'll have a chance. That's exactly what they did at one point. They were the form team in the league over a 10 or 11 game stretch in September, October, and they made the playoffs. They got a home game. They got two home games as a result of fortune going their way. And now they find themselves hosting the MLS cup final in a battle of two, four seeds in each conference. Really can't wait to get out there. Uh, you got me excited just thinking about it right now uh important <laughs> later this week um we'll get some, to some more domestic stuff later on in the show in segment three but let's talk a little bit about premier league stuff over the weekend ralph rangnick gets a win in his first game with manchester united um one nil 
and you know you could see some evidence at least in the first half of of maybe some of the pressing that Rangnick's going to want to do with this team. Uh, didn't do as much of it in the second half, but um, you know they get the win over Crystal Palace. And if you're a United fan, you like it in three points and Rangnick's first game. And Ralph Rangnick had talked a lot about. Look, I can only do this one step at a time because I'm jumping aboard a moving train and I have one training session. It kind of reminds me of when Thomas Tuchel took over at Chelsea last year. He similarly jumped in 24 hours before a game, had one training session, coached the next day, and kind of set them forth in kind of the exactly the same way that they're playing now, which is fairly remarkable. And I think uh, Rania kind of signaled from the start, like, I'm going to do this my way. Played his traditional 4-2-2-2 system uh, with, with the two strikers and having playing very narrow and then having, you know, expecting a lot out of, you know, Rashford and even Cristiano Ronaldo, Bruno Fernandes and Shane and Sancho to do a lot of running to try and press from the front. I thought the pressure was going to tell in the first half. In the first half hour, Crystal Palace, I think, were stunned by what they saw and the amount of pressure that was coming their way. But there wasn't really that guilt-edged chance that came from it. I think they had 11 first-half shots, Manchester United, but none of them, like, their XG figure wasn't that high because none of them were really that dangerous. But I think you saw a step in the right direction. And then in the second half, it really just came down to can you eke out a win to kind of signal a positive start, a new manager bounce, a good feeling with this new manager coming in because I feel like the Man United fans are going to want to see some early returns and at the very least climb up towards the Champions League places. So a step in the right direction, but there's a lot of movement and a lot of football coming from Manchester United as well because it's right into the Champions League in midweek. Yeah, and and think about how many Premier League games there are going to be over the next month. You know, Champions League will shut down after this midweek for a couple of months. And, you know, how many games the Premier League plays around the holiday season, which is fun, but it's a lot of games. So we'll see very quickly what kind of an impact Ralph Rangnick is having on that team. At the top of the table, which is not where Man United is, by the way, um, some shakeup. Uh, it you know, everyone pretty much thinks this is going to be a three-team race. That's certainly what it's shaping up to be. But Chelsea loses a wild game to West Ham on the most ridiculous of goals. Um, and I'm so not used to seeing Chelsea concede goals that to see them give up three in one game, including one where Mendy just lost the plot uh, for the game winner for, uh, for West Ham, uh, very uncharacteristic defensive performance from Chelsea. Yeah, and West Ham, uh, I thought for large portions of the match, were kind of a bit too cautious in going at Chelsea, uh, but David Moyes seems to have a plan. And so it was kind of soak up some pressure and then hit back. And West Ham just have a couple of elements. I saw even in in, in the match before, uh, in a home game against Brighton, they drew 1-1, but in particular from set pieces, that team is a menace. They send Tomas Suchek towards the near post, and everyone's kind of meant to react off of that, and it's really hard to defend. They're difficult to, to manage from set pieces, and they manage to get the rub of the green in this one. And you mentioned that last goal from Arthur Masuaku off that left side across that becomes a shot. He admitted that he didn't mean, that he didn't mean to do it. Um, but I think when Chelsea concede goals, it reveals to me what I think is ultimately the Achilles heel in Chelsea, is that even though, I mean, they hammered Norwich earlier in the year when they were at their worst, but I still, it's 2-2, and Chelsea, you know, are trying to chase a West Ham team who lost a center back and Kurt Zuma in the game. They throw on a midfielder for him, so they change shape, and you'd think that this is Chelsea's chance to take advantage, but I, I just, I'm not convinced by them going forward sometimes, particularly just because of the 
the way the, the the style of players that they have out there. The wingbacks are asked to do a lot defensively. The central midfielders don't really offer much attacking threat in terms of goal scoring. Ruben Loftus cheek on top form could, but Jorginho, Saul, Conte, not exactly guys that you're expecting to get goals. And so Chelsea are always looking for goals from alternate places, from defenders mostly. And so I think when it comes down to these moments, they don't change shape. They only really have three attackers out there, and I just don't trust them to get that go-ahead goal in that moment. And instead, they gave it up down the other end. It's interesting, though, because like I used Chelsea's defensive prowess to sort of make them my pick to win uh, the Premier League and maybe even Champions League again. And uh, But you're right about the unpredictability of the attack. It would certainly help if you could count on Romelu Lukaku being available from the start of games for a for a period of time and they haven't really had that uh for a little while here so um i think that's going to be something to watch and then you look at liverpool which maybe not this weekend but does have a, a real goal producing attack in a way that chelsea doesn't and this was just another case though uh for Liverpool against Wolves of getting the late goal from Divock Origi, who has this habit. He doesn't score that much, but the goals he scores are huge. Yeah, I feel like there's going to be a book written about Divock Origi. <laughs> it's going to kind of like chronicle this Liverpool era, and you can almost track it through the goals of Divock Origi, which is kind of bizarre. <laughs> but it's true because he has played such a central role despite not playing a central role at all in some moments. I actually uh, heard a funny quote from Jurgen Klopp, who apparently said, I wish that Divac can find a manager who plays him more than I do because he deserves it. Um, but, I mean, he's always kind of been the fourth attacker in this team. Now he's the fifth attacker when you include Jota in that group. But he comes up with a big moment. And Liverpool deserve the three points on the day. But if you're Chelsea and your city, you're looking at that result. It's nil-nil for 94 minutes and you're hoping that Wolves can hang on. But Liverpool continue to grind it out. And you mentioned their, their scoring ability. I, I kind of only just registered their goal difference this weekend. Scored 44, conceded 12 in 15 games they're averaging three goals a game which is incredible and you just expect that Salah is going to get on the board that Jota is going to get on the board and they're unstoppable at the moment but Wolves nearly did yeah no it's uh it's a fun race though like I I I hope it continues this way that there's going to be three teams duking it out at the top uh City wins pretty comfortably against Watford over the weekend and I'd love to see these teams like changing places, you know, week after week and, and just going back well, they, and forth. They, they all had their turn at the league lead on Saturday, which is, yeah. in, which is incredible. Love when three teams lead the league in a single day. The other news uh, for this segment, Jesse Marsh fired by Leipzig. And I can't say that I was surprised, but it's still a giant bummer um, for... I think for American soccer, this is a guy, and I had written a big story about Jesse Marsh uh, back in August uh, for my side, visited him in Leipzig at the start of the season. There was so much optimism from him and, and from people around there about what he might be able to do. And then from an American soccer perspective, this was the highest that an American coach had gone in Europe in terms of soccer. And, and so I... To have it only last, what, three months? Um, you know, three, a little over three months is, is, is a pretty giant bummer. It actually makes me think back a little bit to how short Bob Bradley's tenure was at Swansea in the Premier League. Big difference here, though, is that Leipzig was expected to be 
top three, top four team in Germany. They have not been that. And uh, it was pretty clear when they lost to Union Berlin on Friday and some of the stuff said by Oliver Mintzlaff, the CEO afterward, was pretty pointed. And, and it felt like that might be it for, for Jesse Marsh. And, and indeed it is. Yeah. And it, it was bizarre to kind of read afterwards that basically the hierarchy at RB Leipzig had the wrong read on what the club needed after Julian Nagelsmann left. Because I think... Red Bull, at their heart, are Rolf Ranić's organization, which is why I think so much has been talked about him in the last couple of weeks surrounding the Manchester United job, because he is such a thought leader that, in some ways, Red Bull wanted to get back to what they were, that they kind of feel more comfortable being that, you know, typical German pressing 4-2-2-2 diamond go at teams and really have a go. And I think the current playing squad had probably become more accustomed to playing the Nagelsmann way, which is, as yeah. Oliver Minslav said, solving more problems with possession. And so yeah. so I, I think that the fact that they went back to the old way, it didn't really fit them, and it was kind of a stylistic fit. What kind of it leaves you wondering is, what's Jesse Marsh's next gig? Because he was such a Red Bull man through and through, that is there another Bundesliga club that looks at him and goes, well, it didn't work there, but that's the philosophy that we operate with here, and so let's bring him in. Or is he back to MLS? Is an Austrian club going to go in for him? Like, you don't know kind of what, is an English club going to go in for him? Because obviously he speaks English, and that system is kind of being preferred by, you look at clubs like Barnsley that are implementing it. There's a few more teams that are playing that out-and-out pressing way in England. Uh, who knows what's next for him? But I think it was kind of bizarre that Red Bull read their own team so poorly, given that that's kind of what they're known for. They're known for having a top-down identity. It's a great point. And I'm a little surprised that that maybe Marsh didn't have a little more support for a longer period of time, given how public he was about wanting to reestablish this pure Red Bull uh, identity that hadn't been there as much under Nagelsmann. But, um, you know, I, I, I feel like, and I don't have any exclusive information here, I feel like Marsh is going to want to get a job in Europe next. I feel like coming to the U.S., now for like an MLS job. And I'm sure that fans of LAFC are like, oh, you know, like, you know, Jesse Marsh is available. I don't think my guess is Jesse Marsh does not want to come back to the US right now because he wants to go as far as he can in coaching. And I think he probably feels like he needs to do that in Europe. And that if he comes back to MLS now, he might not ever leave the U.S. again. Yeah, and certainly you can get pegged as such. And you wonder if this is a setback again for American coaches, um, just because you mentioned Bob Bradley, you have Jesse Marsh here. Uh, you know, in the week, and we'll talk about this later with Jim Curtin, he has European ambitions as well. You know, is there an American coach that's going to break the mold and kind of be what Christian Pulisic was on the playing side? I, I don't think... It, there's any mistake that once Pulisic broke through at Dortmund and then, you know, got sold to Chelsea, that all of a sudden clubs started to look towards the American market as it being legit because of Christian. And so there has to be a manager version of that. And I really thought that Jesse Marsh was going to be it just because, again, he is synonymous with Red Bull from New York, from Salzburg to Leipzig, was an assistant at Leipzig. He knows that organization. He purposely became an assistant after being a head coach in New York because he wanted to ingratiate himself in that culture. And it was everything was right. Did well in the Champions League, I thought. Won the Austrian title. It, it seemed as though that if any coach was going to do it, it, it almost as, it was almost as if Jesse Marsh had the cheat code because he had such institutional knowledge. 
And even he didn't crack it and gets sacked before we even get to the winter break in Germany. And so it's a little heartbreaking from an American kind of thought standpoint. Like, is there a coach that's going to crack it? And is it going to be Jesse somewhere else? Uh, But either way, I agree with you. I think he's going to have to stay in Europe if he wants to maintain a reputation as a coach kind of that is going to be a European quality manager. All right. We'll bring Chris back in segment three to talk about Jim Curtin and some other domestic stuff. Now, here's my interview with John Sutcliffe. Our guest now is one of the top sports reporters in North America. John Sutcliffe works for ESPN, and you can find him on a bunch of different platforms, including the radio and Monday Night Football. He also works with the Mexican national team covering that and does work on golf as well. John, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Grant, un abrazo, amigo. It's a pleasure. It's always fun. Uh, You remind me of Landon Donovan yelling at me, dos a cero. I don't know why. <laughs> it's funny because we have landed on, on my podcast after every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier talking about the game, and, and I'll try and get him to say that, and, and, and we'll make it a, a sound bite. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> we've known each other for a long time. I was actually thinking back to when I first met you. Was it the 1998 World Cup? Probably. That was the first time I my, my first World Cup I covered was for Radio 94. Mm-hmm. In 98, it was with Univision. I, I covered Bordeaux and Nantes. So that's probably yeah. uh, that. That's when yes. I started to learn a lot of things about television. They, you know, <laughs> Q&A and live to tape, and all those things. That I had no idea what it was. But yes, in the good old days with Andres Cantor and, and, and Norberto Longo and Jesse Lozada. Remember yeah. those good old days? The glory days, man. I, a lot of good memories. I think it, I met you in Nantes, it must have been, because I was there covering a game early in the tournament between Nigeria and Spain, uh, which was a, a classic one. I have a great story about that game. Uh, so, Bora Minutinovic, I've known Bora since I was five years old, mm-hmm. because a man called Nick Petrovic brought him to Mexico. He was like his second dad, brought him to play with Pumas, and I met Bora when I was five. We belonged to the same golf course, Club de Gol Chapultepec. So I remember the day before that game, the, the prime minister, the main government official of Nigeria had passed away. Mm-hmm. So Bora went to the press conference. And if you remember, he only you know, gave his words of, 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 of what had happened. And he basically cut out the press conference. Mm-hmm. But he said, with that, with you, he, he pointed at him and said, I'll talk to you after. So all the Spanish media came next to me and Bora said, I'm only going to talk to him. So it's one of those that you're young, you're trying to make your name. And Bora gave me all that publicity. It was awesome. I, I love him. I, I, I still see him this time of year. He usually comes back from Qatar to see his daughter. And, and he's something very, he's somebody very special in my life because he says, when I was seven, eight years old, he would take me to go see Pumas and I was an America fan. But it was part of, you know, I didn't realize who he was. He would just train us at the club. And then when I started growing up, you know, he's a he's a professional soccer player and he's a head coach. And it was awesome. So, yes, that I, and then if I'm not mistaken, Nigeria, Nigeria won like four to two or. They beat Spain, one of the greatest time. World Cup games I've ever seen. And. And Bora was coaching that Nigeria team. The crazy thing, John, is there's so many new fans, uh, including my listeners of the U.S. men's 
national team over the last few years that a lot of them don't mm. even know who Bora is. And I have to, ex- I should explain to him right now, Bora Milicinovic coached the U.S. in the 94 World Cup, got him to the second round, lost to Brazil, but he also coached the Mexican national team. He's coached. He's the only coach to be in five World Cups because he was Mexico 86, Costa Rica 90, U.S. 94, Nigeria 98, China 2002, <laughs> and he actually had to patent his name in China because they were making plates and towels and T-shirts with Bora's name. So, yes, he he's a very different character that I do think that Mexican football has not given him his respects. I think Bora, Bora has a chip on his shoulder on that side, Frank, that he's never been really given what he's done for Mexican football. I don't think he, that's something that I think made him leave Mexico a long time ago. It's really interesting. He got Mexico to the Quinta Partido, the fifth game in 1986, which, uh, uh, hasn't happened. Uh, yeah. They go out on penalties to Germany. Penalty kick. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I, I visited him in China in 02 before that world cup and he was an absolute rock star there, but, Mm -hmm. uh, he's living in Qatar most of the time now. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing him at the World Cup. Um, you know, we're recording this on Thursday and coming out Monday. So there's going to be some Liga MX semifinals between now and when we come out. But so far, like, or, or just when it comes to Liga MX, like, what are you know what's standing out to you these days in terms of storylines? I think you have the the teams that have money, the teams that have been spending money, and not necessarily getting the best results. But I think you have different social classes because the most popular teams for years have been America, Cruz Azul, and Pumas. But right now, the, the two rich teams are in, in Monterey, Rayados and Tigres. Mm-hmm. Now, Tigres is, I think, the only, the only team that can compete spending-wise with MLS teams for the Mexicans. I can tell mm-hmm. you they went for Hector Herrera, They've been going after him for a while. I also heard that Austin was close to getting a Hector Herrera. So you, that's what we're seeing. But there also is a, a, a big pandemic economical crisis. You know, now 12 teams make the playoffs. It's ridiculous. But it's I think uh, Mexican soccer is living hard times because of COVID, just like the MLS has had hard times. But at the end of the day, you know, Chivas and America are the two most popular teams. Uh, America will retain uh, Santiago Solari. They're going to finally spend money. I think America used to be known like the richest. We call it Ricky Ricon. Remember that cartoon, Richard Rich? Yeah. He would spend all the money. That's how America used to be. And they, they haven't done that lately. And I think they've realized that if they don't start putting some money up, they're not going to be able to compete with uh, Tigres or uh, Rayados. And what do you make of the relationship that continues to grow between Liga MX and Major League Soccer? You know, they announced mm-hmm. this tournament that's going to mm-hmm. take a month. I guess it's starting in 23, and it's going to be a World Cup-style tournament involving every team from both leagues. What's going on there? I know that the most important owners... Emilio Azcárraga, Alejandro Ragorri, Ricardo Salinas, Jesús Martínez. They want to see if there's a way to do a joint venture with MLS in 2026. What I've been told is Mexico has something, the Mexican League has something that the U.S. hasn't been able to do, is get a great TV contract. And a, a great TV contract would come if it involves America, 
Pumas, Cruz Azul. I, I remember uh, Mikel Arreola showing me a study they did on that there's, um, let me see if I remember the numbers, but let's say there's uh, 15 million Mexicans that watch Liga MX in Mexico, and there's like 40 million Mexicans that watch Liga MX in the States. It's almost triple the audience in the States for Liga MX. And they have 600% more capacity of spending. Mm -hmm. So I think they're, I think they're going to try. Uh, I was told recently that I think the, the MLS team in Vegas, they're going to pay $450 million for it. You know, Cincinnati, $300 million. Mm -hmm. And then here they they sell Querétaro and Querétaro sells for twenty five million dollars, and they they <laughs> got to pay it you know on monthly on monthly fees. I think they are going to try it. If you see Infantino has said something and he says, you know, I don't see. I think they're going to try it. I do think it, it'll come down to a, a day when there'll be a billion dollar contract for TV rights, but it has to involve everybody. And maybe the TV contracts what it's going to say, even though I've heard. You talk to a lot of people in the States, they say, no, 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 no. That's never going to happen. A lot of people don't want it to happen. But if the business side happens, it's going to happen, Grant. Right? Or at least they're going to try to make it happen. It's a fascinating story. And we've had Don Garber on this podcast. We've had Alejandro Iraragori on mm -hmm. this podcast. Um, Alejandro Alejandro's the one who had the idea. Eh? Yeah. He, and he's the Don mastermind. Turn it, Don's not denying it. So... <laughs> No, 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 because it, obviously there's a lot of things, you know, that the way the Mexican soccer is done and in the contract, there's a lot of things that would have to improve to have the high quality of how things are run in the States. But it's all about dinero. It's about money. If you can find a way, look, I, I know that the idea they had or the idea they have is 30 MLS teams 20 Mexican Liga MX teams, a joint venture for TV rights. And just imagine if you can actually sell the rights that involve America, Pumas, and Cruz Azul in Spanish and English. And then Puebla goes to play New York, and they're going to have a great uh, fan base that a lot of people from Puebla live in Nueva York. And then you have even Morelia might come back to Liga MX. So I think I do think they're going to try it. I don't know if it's going to happen, but all of these tournaments they're doing is Mikel Arriola has been asked by the owners, say, hey, we need dollars, not pesos. So they're going after the dollars. And you cover the Mexican national team. Um, mm -hmm. What's your sense of where that team is right now under Tata Martino? First of all, I was there in Cincinnati and I said on, on, on Football Picante and on Sports Center on ESPN, we're big, Mexico's big, living a big lie, and I'll explain why. I, I think that this pandemic, this economical crisis, has made the teams in Central America really go down. I covered Mexico in the summer in, 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 in Copa Oro and the other tournaments they played, and you could see how Honduras how El Salvador, they were struggling to get the COVID test. What hotel they're going to stay? They don't have money to do a lot of logistics. So I do think that Canada, the States, and Mexico eh, have shown their power, their strength on money organizations. So now when, when Honduras and Costa Rica and El Salvador can't compete, then Mexico is qualifying very easy to the World Cup, but that doesn't mean you're playing better. And then mm -hmm. you realize that the, the U.S. and Canada, there's, there's a, 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 
un sabor, there's a flavor for soccer, there's, there, you got players in Europe, you probably have a number in your mind, but last time I checked, there was like five Mexicans playing Champions League, this Champions League, and there's like 20 some Americans. So I think everything has, and you have our main Mexican players in Europe aren't playing. Mm -hmm. uh, Tecate, HH, Guardados hurt, Lines. So you take out uh, Irving El Chucky Lozano, and the rest haven't been question marks. Even Raul Jimenez, Raul Jimenez isn't right. ready. He's not back at 100%. So I think that's where you're living. And then I do think there's some kind of lacking chemistry between Tata and the players. Hmm. I learned a long time ago from Jared Borghetti to look at how you train, how they walk, how they get on the bus, how they warm up. And that tells you a lot. And mm -hmm. I don't see him happy. I don't mm -hmm. see the Mexican team happy. I was in Indy for a couple of days in the same hotel where they were preparing for the game in Cincinnati. And there's something there that's not clicking. I don't know if Tata has had a, a – he, he, he doesn't talk directly to the players. It's more his assistants. And you no. know how Mexican players are. If you don't bring the family in, you don't let them have some time off. If they can have a couple of beers, those things sometimes – Well, even the U.S., I think, is struggling now with that new world, with a lot yeah. of players saying, hey, we, we want it different. We, we're not soldiers, no? There's been a bit of that. You know, the COVID protocols are really tight inside mm -hmm. the U.S. national teams, including the men's team. And, you know, you saw what happened with Weston McKinney, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, back in September being sent home for That usually happens with Mexico, days. not the U.S., no? <laughs> So I, I do think there's some of that, but I would say that kind of like what you're saying with the Mexican team, I actually do feel like for the most part when I'm around this U.S. men's team that they enjoy coming into the national team camp to, to play with each other. And that hasn't always been the case under Bruce Arena even in 2017 uh -huh. or Jurgen Klinsmann before that. And I do think there is something that can be seen in when you're just watching players interact on the national team, are they enjoying, do they look like they're enjoying being here? That tells you a lot, Grant. I think, I insist, I learned that from Jarev Borghetti, and you realize, and I'll give you an example how sometimes priorities aren't priorities. Before the game in Cincinnati, Edson Alvarez and Irving Lozano had a fly from Europe to Mexico City to fi film a commercial for a sponsor. And then they were delayed in Mexico City Airport. They had to fly to Chicago. They had to be driven to Indianapolis. And they missed a day and a half of practice for Tata. Wow. So maybe maybe each of them got a million dollars or $500,000. And maybe the U.S. men's national team, maybe even Pulisic, you tell <laughs> a player, hey, You're going to make 500 grand, but we need you to go to L.A. and then report a day later. He might say yes, but those little things add up. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily the best decision on the on the pitch. So you, we have a lot of these kind of things. No, I think Tata has had a strong uh, hand on discipline. There's no question Chicharito's out because of what he did. Those parties that happened in, 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 in Jersey and in San Antonio. And then there were some girls that needed their bill to be paid. And he asked somebody on the Mexican team, can you help them out from operations? 
And then John De Luisa saw that kid at some point and, and it cost him his job and Chicharito didn't do anything about it. And then Tata says, hey, I'm not taking this. You're gone. And, and so certain things, I think you do have the discipline. But at the end of the day, I think the biggest concern, thinking of the World Cup, not qualifying, is what Juan Carlos Osorio would always tell us. How can you be a team where their players every week compete with the best in the world and they play their starters? And I think that's our biggest issue. Because mm -hmm. if you realize right now, even some of the players on the Mexican team from Liga MX, Romo wasn't playing good lately. And then you realize, Chucky, yes. And then you go back. Tecate has been playing. Raul's not 100%. Guardado's not 100%. HH doesn't have the minutes he would like in Atletico Madrid. So this is the same movie that we're living. It, it's The Mexican team is like a blockbuster movie that sells like crazy. Everybody wants to see it, but not, not necessarily it's the best product. But like <laughs> it sells like crazy. Everybody's there. Just look at the new, they just announced the new logo brand. Right. And, and, and I say, well, I don't like it very much. But then they say, hey, John, what happens is it this new logo prints a lot easier and it saves a lot of cost from the old logo. So boom, that's what then we're good. That's it. That's the reality of they changed the logo of the Mexican national team. It's a way to save money on produ producing the, the jerseys. No? So, Fascinating. Do you think Todd Martino will be Mexico's coach at the World Cup? Yes, I have no question. Um, the only time the big bosses get nervous, I always say like, Justino, you got to get rid of Chepo. You're bringing Bucetich. Oop, you got to bring Piojo. When, look, the Mexican national team's interests are controlled by the Mexican open-air TV. That's a reality. They have the rights, and they usually say, look, if we have two or three good games prior to the World Cup and Mexico plays four games, we're good. When mathematically you're in trouble to qualify. Like when they had to bring Piojo in to go to New Zealand or when they convinced Javier Aguirre to help them out for South Africa. That's when, when the alarms sound. But Tata's going to qualify. Obviously, the next year, if something happens in Jamaica and then something happens in Azteca, that's when, that's when you probably get a phone call from the owners and say, hey, uh, that... I do see Tata being in the World Cup, but if he mathematically gets into trouble to qualify, that's when the changes happen. I don't think that's going to happen. John Sutcliffe is always the man to talk to about things in Mexican soccer, North American soccer, NFL. He does so much good work everywhere. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. More than happy. Un abrazo, amigo. All right, let's bring Witty back here and let's talk domestic soccer news. A couple interesting reports this week. Uh, Jim Curtin, this was reported by Sam Stasekel at The Athletic, being pursued for the FC Cincinnati job. Chris Albright, former Philadelphia exec, now in Cincinnati. So that's not entirely surprising. Um, Curtin did respond publicly, though, and said he's got two more years on his contract with Philadelphia. He intends to honor them. So is this open and shut? I don't necessarily think so. I, I mean, you know, Jim Curtin is from the local area, and he did take his team to a conference final, and they've got a good thing going in Philadelphia. But I do think that Cincinnati does offer the proposition 
of being, in some ways, a bit more Jim Curtin's. I think Jim Curtin's had an interesting trajectory because for the first few years of his coaching career, is a bit dire at times in Philadelphia. And, yeah. part, and part of that has to do with the organization not really having a clear philosophy and Jim Curtin being new at this. And so it took him a while, and it took until Ernie Stewart took over, then they had their run of success, and then Ernst Tanner takes over. And in some ways, Jim Curtin has kind of become two different coaches. The coaches, the, the coach who can run Ernie Stewart's system and the coach who can run Ernst Tanner's system, but it's not really his own. I'm not sure if if he were to just be given a blank canvas, if this is the way that he would coach. He's coached to the philosophy of the club, and he's done a very good job at it. So I, I do wonder if Jim Curtin has a bit more of an, of an independent streak and also recognizes that FC Cincinnati is a load of potential. It's a brilliant stadium. It's an ownership group that's spending way more money than Philadelphia do, and a beautiful training facility, and maybe it's a gateway towards something bigger. But either way, uh, I, I, I did find interesting that Philly were kind of in they were picked obviously of a of a smart mind in Chris Albright and that Chris Albright kind of almost had like the gumption to go at his former employer saying well I kind of left you had to grab permission now I'm going to try and take your coach uh which by the way it's the smart thing to do if you can do it do it but I, I'm kind of fas- fascinated from Jim Curtin's perspective how he views the two realities because you can very easily make an argument for either side we'll see how this plays out and, and you're right I think it may not be totally done but pretty nervy move pretty bold move by chris albright uh to even attempt something like this um with with jim Curtin, and we'll see i mean like you mentioned cincinnati does have a lot of money uh they just haven't spent it well over the last few years and they're they're truly terrible like worst team in the league three straight years yeah they need to make some big changes uh not just at the coach level but a lot of players too um other news in the coaching ranks, Nico Estevez is the new coach for FC Dallas, moving from being an assistant on the U.S. men's national team. Luchi Gonzalez, the former FC Dallas coach, takes his position as an assistant with the U.S. men's national team. So kind of an interesting switcheroo here. Um, Nico Estevez is probably best known for his relationship with Yunus Musa, which helped convince Yunus Musa to choose to play for the United States over England because Nico Estevez, who has ties at Valencia where Musa plays, found out pretty early about Musa being there and having a U.S. passport. And uh, from, you know, when I've talked to Yunus Musa, uh, pretty clear, close relationship has developed there, uh, not just communicating when he's with the national team, but all the time. And so um, I'm curious to see if this has any impact on Yunus Musa with the national team that, you know, his main coaching point of contact is, is not there now, but um, in terms of FC Dallas, what do we know about them? They don't like spending a lot of money on coaches <laughs> uh, and, and will, Nico Estevez be in a position where he can get wins at a club that's best known for developing talent and selling it. Yeah, and and for me, it's does it represent a real upgrade in what they had in Luchi Gonzalez? Because you know Luchi Gonzalez got them to the playoffs, won a you know like I think competed really well in a, in a playoff game against Seattle, then had his best players sold in the off season and tried to give it a go. They fell off massively after he left. Uh, the, the interim did not do a good job in, in keeping that afloat, brought through players. And so in theory, did a part of the job 
that I think he could have been reasonably expected to do. The question is, is this representative of an upgrade? Because in terms of resume, it's not. And in terms of institutional knowledge, it's not. Because Luchi Gonzalez went all the way through that organization. And so I don't know what Nico Estevez could represent other than an improvement in the quality of coaching, which maybe at times you could have questioned over the course of Luchi Gonzalez's run in Dallas, but you don't know if that's really going to be the case until Nico Estevez comes in and says, you know, like he, he puts his mark on the team and it looks appreciably different. But kind of on the surface, it doesn't look like a massive upgrade, but I do think that going forward, maybe he's just a better coach and we just don't know it yet. It is really interesting, your point, though, because you talk about upgrade. It's pretty hard to have an upgrade, isn't it, when the guy literally takes the job that he just left. Right. <laughs> He's replacing. In, in, so. the, in, the so- in the greater <laughs> soccer world, these are viewed to be the exact same quality of job. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, and then also, uh, Velez Sarsfeld's uh, Tiago Almada, on his way to Atlanta United, if you go by Velez's uh, Twitter, uh, for $16 million, which would be an MLS transfer record, um, and then Atlanta puts out a, a response basically saying, yeah, this isn't official yet, which I kind of read as Atlanta saying, we realize we have three DPs right now. Yes, we need to sell a DP before we can do this. Don't wreck our transfer value. Uh, yeah, and, and you would imagine the favorite there to get sold would be Ezequiel Barco. He's been there long enough. It's time for him to go. Uh, the question is, you know, where in Europe... Uh, is there a move for him? It, Italy has been linked before, but is there going to be a club that values a Secular Barco to even that be a break-even transfer, which at the time was a $15 million transfer? So they've got to get that sorted before they get Almada in. But for me, Atlanta are a remarkable club because yeah. the amount of money that they've spent is unlike any other. I imagine in terms of transfers, transfers outgoing, they might even dwarf the entire rest of the league combined. <laughs> Although, I mean, you see, like I saw Orlando was linked with a $10 million move for a Uruguayan player. Like, those numbers are starting to creep up. But man, like, just when I felt like, how are they going to have room for Marcelino Moreno? They find the room and then they buy him down from DP to Tam. How are they going to have the room for Luis Araujo? Uh, they, they find the money and they buy a player down. Like, how are they going to find the room for Tiago Amada? Yeah, we'll figure it out. Like, you can tell that Arthur Blank would spend way more on this team if he was afforded the opportunity to. It's already crazy the amount that he spent, and it really should lift the burden of expectation. Gonzalo Pineda has a job on next year to probably finish top three in the East at the very least. That's your expectation when you're bringing the quality of player that they're bringing in transfer window after transfer window after transfer window. No, Atlanta wants to be Atlanta again, and they weren't this season, so... I've um, been for a couple seasons. Yeah, true. And I, I, I still like the Pineda hire. I think he uh, has a real future, and I I'm kind of admire them for making that decision. Um, but it helps to you know to have good players, and Almada certainly is that. Uh, he's got some sketchiness in his background that I think not a lot of, uh, not every Atlanta fan's thrilled about this. But uh, we will see uh, what comes of that. 
moving forward. All right. Thanks, Chris, as always. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank John Sutcliffe, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. I'll also have an on-location story from Portland on the MLS Cup final this weekend. Sign up there and get my posts in your inbox the second they go out. We'll see you next time. 